0: Return with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. We'll probably be in the book maybe another two weeks. Then, after that, uh, we'll take a break for maybe a week, and then we'll get into the Beatitudes. If you like to be blessed, come. You'll get some blessing then for sure. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, then among the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his side, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes... Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please. With regard to the Jews, and the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to its people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred by the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and every province and every city, Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news that we have heard already this morning. We pray that you would help us to receive the good news that is about to be given. Lord, give us ears to hear eyes to see, softened hearts, uh, make us ready to receive the, the very word of life, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Two separate occasions, uh, Mark Twain uh, said the, sort of the same statement, either truth or reality, he said truth or reality are stranger than fiction. The reason being that fiction is always obliged to stick to possibilities where the truth is not. So you can see sometimes uh, the real story can be even crazier than the one that's imagined. As I was reading the last couple of chapters of the book of Esther this week, it was reminded of another dystopian series. This time, um, the film series known as The Purge. Perhaps you've seen commercials for it. It's a totalitarian regime in the not-too-distant future in the United States. Passes a law, uh, an annual event, known as the purge, wherein all crime, including murder, is legal for one night. So for 12 hours, any good citizen can go out into their local community and slaughter their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends and their enemies, even random strangers, and then plunder all their goods. Does it sound familiar? (sighs) The very reason why a story like this works is because it plays off of our fears of what the future might hold, because we still seemingly live in a safe and orderly society. It would never happen here, we think, but yet we're still afraid that it will, and so those types of stories are, they capture our interest, but that, if you think about it, this is almost exactly what's happening here in the text, a true story in which this same thing happens. It's a day of purging, not just 12 hours like in the, the film series, but for 24 hours. Any citizen living in the entire Persian Empire can take up their sword and in broad daylight slaughter their Jewish neighbor to the ground with the state's backing and resources. That's a dark day. You can see why the Jews would be Sitting in ashes and weeping and mourning and fasting for many, many days. It's not hard to understand why they would be overwhelmed with grief because this is what it's a horror. It's absolute horror. Now, technically, the previous chapter ended on a high note, literally, with Haman being hung on that 75 foot gallows, right? And so we think, well, everything's great now. We're, we're we're getting somewhere here. But unfortunately, it doesn't change the fate of the Jews as a whole. Haman's dead, but his edict lives on. Remember, any law that's passed by the king cannot be abrogated. It has to continue to be in effect. And so no matter what's happened, The law is still in effect. The Jews are still in danger. There's still a day in the near future in which all Jews would be purged from the face of the earth. That's the law. That's the edict that was passed. So with with Haman's demise as the king's most trusted servant, some things begin to change. The highest official in the land is now literally moments before he is killed. The the ring is ripped off of his finger that was the, the king's signet ring. And then we see later that the king gives that same ring to Mordecai. In the same way, every piece of property, every amount of money he had in his own private treasury immediately reverts to the king because the man's a traitor. So now we see the king also inherits all of this money that was promised him anyway. And he ends up giving the greatest part of the estate to Esther who then also gives it to Mordecai to manage it as his own. Big change, very big change for Mordecai especially. As you can imagine, with Haman's great wealth, he would have had pretty much the largest estate in the city of Susa, outside of the palace itself. Can you imagine Mordecai walking every day, probably passing by Haman's estate and complaining to God? Similar to, you remember Psalm 73, where the the psalmist is complaining, surely God is good to Israel, but it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem as if God really cares. Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why are they in peace and I'm in suffering? Why am I overlooked? Why am I forgotten? If you remember in Psalm 73, the the turning point of the psalmist is when the psalmist goes into the sanctuary of God and he discerns the end of the wicked. He understands that in a moment how they will be swept away and terror destroyed altogether. And that's exactly what we see in the previous chapter. All of a sudden, in a split second, Haman has a a covering thrown over his head and is led to execution, and he's done. His life is snuffed out. And at the same time, we see that Mordecai is elevated in the same way that Haman is humiliated and is of extreme reversal all of, it, all, of, all of a sudden it happens. He's now wearing the, the signet ring. He's now living in the mansion of his enemy. How can There's no more poetic justice than that, than what's, what's occurred at that moment. But still the question is, is God still good to Israel as a whole? Certainly he's good to Mordecai, but is he good to Israel as a whole? There are many Jews that are still facing this imminent threat. Many Jews still afraid. Many Jews still grieving because they know that their life is in danger. The man himself is dead, but the edict lives on. The hard part is that the king now is no longer angry. His anger has been abated, as the Scripture says. So in other words, he's not going to do anything about it. He was angry because his wife was in danger. He was angry because his Savior's life was in danger. And now all of these other Jews, he doesn't give a flying flip about. Literally, he doesn't. He doesn't care whatsoever. It's interesting, I just started reading a book this week entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. The author himself uh, classified himself as an atheist, at least toward the beginning of the book, but by the time he had finished writing it, he has gone back toward Christian belief. Another one of those. He had been studying classical works of antiquity for many years, and he became more and more unsettled by the values of all the ancient rulers that he became familiar with. Uh, For instance, uh, the Greek Leonidas, he, he charged his men to murder people through eugenics on a regular basis. He trained his young men to kill what they referred to as socially inferior people. And there's no consequence for it. They could kill people without any grief whatsoever. Same thing with Caesar. Caesar not only had killed a million Gauls, but he enslaved another million more and considered them absolutely worthless pieces of humanity. It's shocking when you think about most of these ancient rulers and how they treated people. They had no sense of value, any sense of value for humanity. Only for those that they liked. Everyone else was considered to be worthless. It's only with the rise of Christianity, understanding the image of God in every man that that promotes any sense of charity and mercy and love toward your fellow man, especially with the one whom you disagree with, that did not exist outside of the Christian world. So although many people now call America a post-Christian nation, it's not entirely true. Because All of the Christian morality that we have imbibed, we don't even know that we hold it. The very fact that we are concerned about justice and mercy for the weak and and are constantly looking to make things right for humanity, that's a Christian principle. So even though we don't call it Christian anymore, it's still Christian. We're thinking still with a Christian worldview, and we will be for a number of years to come. What my fear is when we don't think that way anymore. And what type of monsters rise up then? If you think the leaders that we have now are bad, can you imagine having someone like Ahasuerus, someone like Xerxes running the country, who has no concern for humanity at all, and would be happy to have a million people wiped out at his pleasure, or or even in his ignorance? He doesn't care. If you think about it, how quickly was he to take the ring off of Haman and then immediately give it to Mordecai without having any clue who Mordecai is? That type of power given to any man He just doesn't care. He doesn't care what happens to them. That's the world that Esther and Mordecai are living in. Esther's married to the man. Mordecai has saved the man who then could then kill millions more because they're expendable pieces of humanity. Thankfully, although the king did not care whatsoever about millions of his own citizens being slaughtered in the near future, Esther does care. In fact, uh, the passage that we read early in Romans with Paul's deep grief over his own people is the same grief that Esther shares. Esther's now safe. Mordecai's now safe. But they're in desperate grief over their people. And so you see, once again, she confronts the king, uninvited to the throne, and pleads and cries before him, which is, if you remember, not supposed to be done. You're not supposed to shed tears in front of the king. You're not supposed to be unhappy because the king wants everyone happy who comes near him. She's sobbing, grieving deeply, and pleading and begging with him to save her own kinsman. And somehow, again, the Lord moves his heart to hear her petition. But don't think for a moment because he cares whatsoever about the things that she cares for. He's not answering her request because he's been convinced that he should protect his own people. He's only doing this because he cares for her. But notice how quickly he washes his hands of the whole event. He says, okay, well, I've already given the ring to, to Mordecai to do as you will. You guys can write a new edict. You can't cancel the other one, but you can write another one that sort of contradicts that one. Again, can you imagine... This is the time in which they live. If this is the time in which we live, no law is actually law, but laws can contradict other laws. That makes no difference whatsoever. This is the time in which they live. And so they're given time and freedom to make a law to change somehow the outcome of the previous law without change of the law itself. And the whole time the king is saying, I have nothing to do with it. Take my ring. Do as you will. He doesn't care. No sense of justice, no sense of equity. He doesn't care who's even wearing a signet ring. And now, what will happen to God's people? I was reading the other day about uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Leto as he wrote the majority opinion in overturning Roe v. Wade. And just not only how he was humbled by it, but just honored that he had the ability to write a piece of paper that immediately changed the outcome for millions of innocent people. I was in Alabama when we heard the news. So David and Steve were with me and with an ATA. And uh, afterwards, I remember turning on the local radio immediately. You're in Alabama, right? And I think there were like three abortion clinics in Alabama still. The minute I heard on the news, boom, they're done. No more abortion in Alabama. Not a single one has taken place since. All of them shut down immediately. Immediately, because of a piece of paper that he wrote down, changed everything. Having that kind of power, that kind of sway, that's what was given to Mordecai. But in the same way, you think about, the hard part is we're in Michigan, we're not in the same state as Alabama. And we still live in a a land that's still killing. And now we have people from Indiana and Ohio coming here to kill their babies because they can't do it as easily there. We still have much to pray for. Much to be ready for in November when we vote again. Take that role seriously. You have the, uh, the power to put a stop to this. Here's a bit of trivia for you. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Everybody always says that. It could be true. There's also 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. And you're only thinking of the English translation. If you actually go in the Greek or the Hebrew, there are actually some shorter, but they're not as fun. They're not as exciting as those two are. Everybody knows a short verse in the Bible, but does anyone know the longest verse in the Bible in any language? Has any kid ever tried to memorize that verse? No. Now they will, now that I said it. Esther chapter 8, verse 9. Look in your text. The longest verse in the Bible to describe the edict that Mordecai had written to counteract Haman's decree. Notice it's a couple sentences, but it just goes on and on and on. Longest verse to describe symmetrically everything that Haman had done is now being undone by what Mordecai is writing. So it's almost exactly the same verbiage, but now he's adding that all of this is also put in is also put into the Jewish language in wherever uh, region that they're living in. In addition to now, the horses are being sent out by the special royal horses that were bred by the royal stud himself. Uh, Essentially, everything is reversed, if you will. Now the Jews are told that they can gather together in defense. Now they're told that they can destroy, kill, and annihilate not only the men, but also the women and children of anyone who seeks to attack them and to plunder their goods. Now, many commentators and some translators, if you have the NIV, for instance, it'll say it differently, but they try to lessen the edict to say that, well, the Jews weren't really attacking the women and the children. They're only attacking the men. And if the women and children attacked them, they could then attack the women and children. But technically, he's reversing the edict entirely to say, that if any man attacks them, it's meant to be a danger, a warning to those who would seek to attack them that they have the right then to attack their women and children, tit for tat, if you will, according to the law. Symmetrically, it only makes sense. It has to follow this way, not the other way around. But if you remember, too, remember who Haman is, particularly. Haman is an Agagite who is a descendant of the Amalekites, right? And the Amalekites were under God's curse. Because they had attacked the weak and vulnerable, the women and the children, way back after the time of the exodus in the wilderness. And so even this, in order for this edict to make sense, God is keeping His vow, His promise to wipe out the Amalekites. So indeed, this applies not just to the men, but to the women and the children as well. There is a curse that is placed upon all of those who have sought to wipe out the Jews. Now, that doesn't mean that every Amalekite who doesn't participate in this will be wiped out, but it does mean that those who have sought to wipe them out will instead be cursed. So this is, again, it goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. God said that he will bless those who bless Israel and that he will do what? He will curse those who curse Israel. And so because of that, they too were able to attack them and their families. The decree would also allow the Israelites to carry out God's order, the very same order that King Saul refused to carry out in destroying the enemies of God. But there's one thing that's interesting. You won't find this until the next chapter. Romans chapter 9, three times it points out that although the Israelites were granted the same right as their enemies to plunder all their goods, if you remember, the Israelites didn't take any of their stuff. Do you know why? That was the reason for King Saul's losing his kingdom because he was supposed to devote to destruction the enemies of God that God had cursed, and yet King Saul had spared King Agag, which is how they get their name, Agagites, and had spared some of the best animals and those things. So after the Israelites defend themselves and attack, if you will, um, they leave all the plunder alone. They do not take it home so they don't fall into the same sin that Uh, king Saul had fallen into. Now you won't actually hear the outcome of this until next week, what actually happens. Uh, The edict has been passed and now we see the horses are swiftly running to all the 127 provinces throughout the Persian empire. But now the, the author pans away from these Pony Express messengers, if you will, back to the mansion itself, back to the king's palace, and in verse 15, we see Mordecai is now emerging from the presence of the king and he's decked out in the royal robes of the king. Blue and white, purple cape overhanging his shoulders, a crown of gold resting on his head, all of the, all of the trappings. But if, if you look at it, you'd almost think that Mordecai himself had become the king. But that's the whole point. This is what was to be done for the man in whom the king delights. He's now the second in command. Now he's wearing the royal robes of the king. What a transformation. Just days before, he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes and grieving and mourning along with all the Jews, and now he is wearing the signet ring of the king, is in power, has all the authority in the Persian empire to write whatever he wants and it's passed. Can you imagine what a transformation that would be if something like that happened here? Pray for that. Notice this time, no one is commanded, though, to bow down before Mordecai as they were commanded to bow down before Haman. The people naturally did. The people naturally stood and applauded. The people naturally rejoiced that they had a righteous man in such a position of authority. It makes me think of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10-11. It says, when the righteous prosper... The city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. What a contrast to the tyranny of Haman's leadership. When everyone was forced to celebrate, now everyone can't help but celebrate because he's such a a good and righteous man. It made me think of another event that I'd read about in the news last week, um, another discouraging piece of news. Um, One of the private schools in New York uh, had had a special pride chapel event held in an Episcopal church nonetheless, in which the students were guilted and shamed into standing up and applauding as a drag queen provocatively and sacrilegiously danced down the aisles of the church. Anyone who didn't immediately celebrate, the teachers were sort of staring at them and doing stuff like this and then going up and prodding them to stand up that you have to come up and stand up or else you're considered you know, some sort of bigot, some hate monger or something of that nature. But of course all the students stand up and begin to clap and all sorts of things like that. Because if they don't, something wrong with them, right? They're, they're not good people even though there's a drag queen, dancing down the aisle of a church, flaunting his body, regardless of who he is. No one should ever be doing that. It's blasphemous. And yet everyone is in there celebrating and applauding and cheering him on. That's the uh, that's the primary problem I have with the whole pride month that we have now, celebrating pride, it, it has to be forced upon you against your will. Any sensible person knows that what is taking place is evil, it's not good, and yet you're supposed to call it good when it's evil. You're supposed to call darkness light and light darkness, and anyone who doesn't is, is of the devil somehow. Honest people don't have to be prodded into celebrating good things. I mean, think about it. If we did this 40 years ago with abortion and all of a sudden there were abortion flags everywhere and you had an abortion month where you were celebrating abortion, would you do it? How is it any different? It's the same concept, you see, but we're being forced to celebrate something that is not worthy of celebration. Again, that's no offense to any particular person who struggles with a particular sin. It's just when anyone is forced to celebrate that which is evil, that in itself is evil. It's only the fear of God that will ever overthrow the fear of man in that regard. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't go along with the crowd, especially young people. Anybody who's less than 20 years of age who's in this congregation right now, hear what I'm saying. Do not do what everyone else is doing around you. Do not say what everyone else around you is saying. Do not follow the lie. God tells you what to know, what to believe, and what to do. Don't, don't do it because the crowd is doing it. It only leads to more chaos, more disorder, more sin. But on this day, in the city of Susa, the wicked aren't being exalted. The righteous are being exalted. And the people can't help but rejoice. They can't help but shout. Mordecai surely stands here as a Christ-like figure before the city. If you remember back in chapter 6, for a very brief moment... (coughs) When Haman wanted to uh, exalt himself, if you remember, before the king, he said, this is what you should do for the guy that you uh, delight in. Instead, Mordecai puts on that robe, puts on that crown, is riding on the king's horse, and he rides on it, and then he gets off and he goes back and puts on his sackcloth and ashes and sits before the gates, right? Nothing has changed. But now, he's putting on those clothes permanently. Do you see any correlation here in the New Testament? You see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration for a brief moment. The disciples see him in his glorious clothes. When Jesus comes through the city of Jerusalem riding on the fold, the donkey people are are, are shouting, they're cheering, hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's only for a brief moment, you see. They don't see the, the rest of it. After that, we see Christ dying on the cross. But you have to remember, that's not the end of the story. Just as Mordecai temporarily wore the righteous robes and then later was made the royal man, the one in whom the king delights, we see the same thing with Christ. When he descends down, not from the palace of the earthly king, but when he descends from heaven itself wearing his royal robes, and everyone is applauding and celebrating and rejoicing, and is full of delight. That's a glorious day. This image here in this passage is a foretaste of that day which is to come. Notice how the people of God respond to this. Verse 16, we're told that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Do you remember when you first understood the Gospel? You first received the Gospel. Do you remember that day? I remember very clearly. I remember I was 17 years old. I had heard the gospel numerous times before, but for some reason it clicked. And on that day, I was on a beach retreat with a bunch of youth that I didn't like. And I remember walking on the beach for the first time and being overwhelmed by God's creation, being overwhelmed by the fact that God had saved me, being overwhelmed that there was more beauty in the world than I could ever see before. For the first time, I had light and joy. And hope, I didn't have it before. That's what's happening here. All of a sudden we see that these people who had been sitting in darkness and grieving and wailing over their future, they hear a, a, just a brief moment of good news. Mordecai is now in charge. And he's just written an edict to save his people from certain destruction. Do you not see that's what the Gospel is? It's the same thing. It hasn't happened yet, but we have already received the good news. The good news that I'm not going to go to hell. I'm not going to be destroyed because of my sin. Christ has already paid for the punishment of my sin. And now my heart is lifted up with joy, with hope that I never had before. That's the way it ought to be. It's a foretaste, you see, of the glory of Christ and salvation. You can only imagine. that I think it was the first day I was ever emotional in my life. My parents are here today. They can testify. I'm a very unemotional kid. They would give me Christmas presents. I would say, thank you, Mom and Dad. I was very emotional the day that I received the gospel of Christ, the day that God opened my heart. I can only imagine what type of emotion I will display when Christ returns to earth. J.R.R. Tolkien, the well-known author of The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, you know, you've heard the stories. He coined a new word to describe such an experience. Uh, Most of us know the the word for all the bad things in the world. We know when when there's like a grand reversal of all things good have turned to bad and darkness has overcome light, we know words for that. We think of a word like catastrophe. It's horrible. It's awful. But there was no word in the English language to describe the opposite of that, where everything bad becomes good and, and darkness is overcome by the light because we don't see it that often. In fact, some of us don't ever see it. He coined a new word called a you catastrophe. Uh, the prefix EU meaning good, a good catastrophe. The opposite, the sudden happy turn of events in a story that pierces you with joy that brings tears because it's so overwhelming, so true, so real, so unexpected that you can't help but rejoice. Of course, the greatest catastrophe ever happened—the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the third day. So unexpected! His own disciples, are like what? Even though he told them like many times before, they didn't get it. And they see him, and they're so full of joy. Literally, that's the moment when the Bible turns from a tragedy to a comedy. For the first moment, our mouths are open in laughter. We're overwhelmed by how good a story it is, how great the good news is. We can't help but rejoice. We can't help but shout. William Shakespeare wrote a number of tragedies, and they're pretty bleak. If you read some of them, they're pretty dark. Everybody's killing each other and cursing themselves, and it's horrible. Toward the end of his life, I think he got tired of writing those, but he wrote one last tragedy that turned into a comedy called A Winter's Tale. And the first three acts are just as dark as dark can get. I mean, it's like you just this guy has no hope whatsoever. If you've never read it, it's, it's quite fascinating. The last two acts are comedy. He merges a tragedy and comedy together. Turn, it, it, he has to skip ten years in advance. But now you just want to laugh. And how ridiculous you thought it was going to be bad, but now it's really, really good. Well, that's how Lord of the Rings ends, if you remember. In a very short period of time, after the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, Samwise Ganji wakes up from his sleep. He's surprised that he's even alive. He's surprised that Gandalf is alive, and he says innocently and yet very delightedly, is everything sad going to now come untrue? Give some thought to that this week. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I think it's a great question to ask. It's a question we don't ask because most of us still have a dystopian mindset of the future, which isn't true. That's not how the story ends. It doesn't get bleaker and bleaker with some totalitarian guy taking over the world and killing us all. It ends with Christ returning in His glory where there's no more death and dying. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sighing. All the former things have passed away and all the sad things come untrue. It's no longer even a fact. There's no tears. There's no sadness. There's no tragedy. Only comedy. When finally Christ gets the last laugh. The catastrophe that we unexp- did not expect. It's happened, you see. But again, we're not quite there yet in the true story of the Bible. If you noticed in our text this morning, the victory of the Jews has not yet taken place. And yet by faith, they're already celebrating. That's what we are here right now. This hasn't happened yet, and yet we're already celebrating. We come here every Sunday to celebrate the good news as if it's already happened because we know the certainty of God's Word that He doesn't lie. He never fails in terms of his word. He always keeps his word. And the way this story ends, at least in this chapter, we see the good news has gone out throughout the city of Susa. Not only are the Jews no longer fasting, now they're feasting, they're celebrating, but even the Gentiles are now saying, I'm one with you. All those who were afraid to even identify themselves with the Jews before wanted nothing to do with them because they're all going to be destroyed. Now they're saying, I want to be a Jew. This is the promise that was given in the prophecies of the Old Testament numerous times in Isaiah, Zechariah. They're all saying, there's going to come a day in which your Gentile neighbors are going to come up to you and take you by the coattails and say, where are you going? I want to go to the house of God with you. That's literally what's happening here. But again, just a foretaste of it. Just a foretaste of it. The end of the story, all the nations of the world, every tribe, every tongue, Jesus is Lord. Bowing before him, going to the house of God With great gladness. We've heard the good news. We believe in God's victory. And that's why we celebrate today. Indeed, truth is stranger than fiction. It's not at all what we expected. According to God's word, not only are the poor and the weak and the downtrodden, not only are they lifted up, but even some of the most wicked characters, those that we would have condemned to hell. God even saves them and can turn them into his protagonist, working on his behalf. Think of the Apostle Paul. He was not always the Apostle Paul. Saul, the ravager of the church, the one who wanted to kill every Christian he could get his hands on, God changes his heart. And now he joins in the celebration. And now his heart grieves for his own people, even for the Christians, the Gentiles, and the Jews together. At that time, all people will stand in joy and praise. No one will be needed to be told, celebrate. No one will have to be prodded. No one will be guilted. No one will be shamed. Everyone will know that is invited to this new kingdom here on earth. They'll naturally rejoice and shout and dance and sing at such a glorious change of events. Saying, Amen. And amen. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty, what? Reigns. Let's pray God, Our Father, we ask that You would help us to believe the Word as it's been given to us. Help us to enter into the story to embrace the truth of what is being said. We pray, Father, that no one here would miss the gospel message, that no one here would misunderstand how Christ has come to save sinners, even the worst of them, and to turn all those antagonists into friends of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe, you would help us to receive the good news as has been given. Help us to celebrate now. Help us not to be overcome with doubt and with fear. Help us not to be overcome with the darkness. Help us to stand in the light, rejoice in the light, and to share the good news with all that we have the opportunity to share it with. Lord, we pray that You would give us power and authority through Christ to go with all the nations of the world and declare the good news that has been given to us. We pray in Jesus' name.